Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. As you'll know by now, these podcasts are produced for the Financial Mail online platform, but they're available as well on both the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms, so we're, we're everywhere. I've become, if not obsessed, at least extremely curious about climate change, our future energy policies, and something called the just transition. The latter is the route, as I understand, by which we get from ESCOM falling apart to a future where we don't burn anything to make electricity. We use renewable power instead. There are a thousand voices speaking at once on the subject here and around the world. Most but not all agree that climate change is real, is a threat, and is caused by humans. The arguments that matter are what we do about it. The world has agreed that by 2050, all countries should be net carbon zero in their energy production. It's a big ask. South Africa, for example, sits with about, and I may be wrong, um, about 50,000 megawatts of installed generating capacity, much of which belongs to ESCOM, burns coal, and falls over all the time. In Germany, they already had that much renewable generating power already installed. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine has prompted the government there that they will get to 100% renewables by 2035. That's like tomorrow. And if we don't get our renewables numbers up, the Europeans are going to start hitting their imports of our stuff, cars included, with carbon footprint taxes. Anything made with a hint of ESCOM's vast carbon footprint on it is in deep trouble in the not-too-distant future. Fortunately, I have with me today the man responsible for making sure the worst never happens. The Presidential Climate Change Commission is nominally headed by the president, actually presided over by former Environment Minister Vali Musa, but it is actually run day-to-day by Dr. Crispian Olva, better known to some of us as Chippy Olva, and one of the most widely experienced managers in the state. He's a medical doctor, public policy expert, uh, author of the widely acclaimed How to Steal a City, and he has that fairly rare thing on the left of our political spectrum, a sense of humor. Crispin, thank you very much for joining me today. And I, I can, can I get to the nub of this energy debate here? Because it is frankly driving me nuts. Who is making energy policy? Guedemantasha's Department of Minerals and Energy came up with the IRP 2019, which looks more and more sort of tatty by the day as it fragments. Business through the National Business Initiative has made a huge contribution, which may or may not get listened to. And then there's you. You've been holding hearings around the country, including quite naughtily at Golabeni and Ponderland, I noticed, and have just merged from a multi-stakeholder consultation. What is it while you're doing these consultations and in your work day to day, what is it that you're looking for? What is it about the transition to renewable energy that has to be just? Well, Peter, thank you for the opportunity and a great question to kick us off. Um, and uh, to to start with, you know, what, what is a just transition? It's, it's a transition in which we deal with the, the, the big development challenges that our country faces at the same time as adapting to the physical effects of climate change and cutting our emissions so that we can reach net zero by around mid-century. 
And what we've heard from communities on the ground and uh, also uh, that's come out of our research is that people, uh, you know, I think everyone understands that the climate is changing, that we do have to radically adjust our economy, uh, that that adjustment is going to have economic effects. And the plea from the ground is that the people that are most vulnerable to those economic effects, the workers, the communities in, in the coal producing areas, and the other parts of the petrochemicals and coal value chains, also the, the, you know, the, the, the people that rely on subsistence livelihoods in rural areas who are going to be potentially devastated by, by the physical effects of a changing climate. These are the people that we've got to seriously help in the transition. We've got to, you know, they are most vulnerable. Most, most of the middle class, you know, have the resources, they've got the ability. If they have to, they can move, they've got livelihoods. Um, but it's the people at the bottom end of, of, of the income spectrum that are seriously vulnerable to the transition. And which, you know, I would argue the state and social partners have an obligation to assist to adjust. Um, and it, 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 it's more than that. I mean, I think if we don't offer a coherent, substantive package which talks about how we're going to create livelihoods and support people in this transition, you're going to have a, uh, you're not going to get consensus around the big economic and, and social decisions that have to be made. And we're going to have a disorderly transition. And the real, you know, the real choice for me uh, that, that we have to confront as a country is, do we want to plan this transition and have it take place in a coherent and orderly way? Or are we going to obfuscate and deny and uh, then be caught napping as the world shifts uh, and then transition in a very chaotic and disorderly way? Um, and obviously, the Climate Commission is you know, trying, to, trying to do the former. Um, you, you asked a question about uh, Minister Mantash. Um, uh, just to say, um, the, the one thing that the media you know, doesn't report on um, is the extent of commonality that there is. Uh, so Mantash sits on the Climate Commission. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of our commissioners. Um, I must say he comes to every every meeting and he is a very active in the debate. Um, and he, he does have some outlier ideas, uh, but he would, you know, he and the rest of the commission would, would all agree there's a transition happening. That transition consists of a decarbonization process in our electricity grid as an absolute priority. Uh, we've got to radically ramp up renewables onto the grid. Uh, we also want to make the transition a just transition. And, he, and he's been a big champion of issues around, for instance, energy access, energy affordability, energy security, which you know people all take as code for saying, well, he's opposed to this transition. It, uh, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Um, he's very actively you know, ensuring that we take national development questions into account in, 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 in the decision-making about how to move forward. Um, 
there obviously are some areas of disagreement on the commission. I mean, for instance, my commission is not agreed on the role of gas or nuclear in the transition. There's a, there's a very active debate about that. But I think everyone would agree that if you're going to put a huge chunk of renewables onto the grid, uh, renewables are intermittent and you have to balance them in some form or another. And that balancing is going to come basically from peaking power. Uh, at the moment, uh, our peaking power comes from pump storage streams um, and um, diesel, uh, diesel fired turbines, very, very emissions intensive. Um, gas is a slightly lower carbon alternative to balancing the grid. So th there is battery technology available. ESCOM is doing a pilot project as we speak uh, using battery technology. But utility scale batteries are not yet at the level of development for, for widespread rollout. Now, we're hoping within 10 years we'll get there. The other big thing that's under development is hydrogen. And you know, as you know, South Africa is making a huge play to be you know, a, a, an exporter of green hydrogen. And we, we do very much have, you know, in companies like Sasol and Anglo, the, techni the technical and organizational ability to do it. So I've got a lot of confidence in that. And long term, I mean, you know, into the 20, late 2030s, 2040s, our, our main energy carrier is going to become hydrogen. Um, but that's a little bit of a way off. And we don't yet have the infrastructure. Can I, can I just stop you there, Crispin, and ask you and ask you to go back to the just transition? Because what I, when I asked you what is just about the transition, what you're describing is, in, is an incredibly complex and um, uh, series of, of steps you would need to take for a, a, a wide variety of constituencies. You've got people who work in, in the coal industry. Um, you've got people who don't work at all. Um, people who are affected by climate change caused by the coal industry. Um, uh, and they surely can't all need the same justice. Uh, and I was just wondering if it was possible to sort of reduce it to, um, to something more simple. Probably not, but let me try. Surely it would be better for all concerned that we make this transition as swiftly and speedily as possible. That would be the most just thing. There are 88,000 people in the coal industry that would be directly affected. 24 million people uh, on welfare who've got nothing. Surely, surely we recognize that, that a, um, a renewably powered economy, South African economy, would be one much more competitive, much more able to um, absorb jobs, that the distribution of renewable energy resources, batteries, um, uh, uh, wind mills, uh, um, uh, panels could be owned by communities all over the country. I mean, the, the opportunities there are vast, and I'm sure they would look after them. Um, surely we're looking for a faster transition. Then I don't want to make this about Gwede Mantash, but you know, surely we're looking for a faster transition than 2050. Surely if the Germans are able to say, we're going to get there in 2035, and they've got a huge economy, we can do that. We've got it. We've got this. We, I'm looking out as I talk to you now. The sky is blue, and there's a wind blowing. 
it's um it's perfect you know and i know battery power is we don't know quite where it's going to be but you know in 10 years you can bet your bottom dollar that it's going to be okay south you one keeps seeing uh, reports now uh, from around the world of countries being you know either 100% on renewables for today or or you know 94% on renewables we are so far away from this and you you worry about us falling behind but we are already behind even with hydrogen well i would agree with you peter that the pace at which we transition is the most important strategic question in front of us uh so how fast do we want to do it um we we capture the level of ambition that the country signs up to in in what's called a bit obscurely our nationally determined contribution it's basically something that we submit to the united nations climate commission um and it sets out our emissions trajectory for the next 10 years and uh last year the commission did quite a bit of research and modeling to try and work out what was a feasible trajectory for us uh we followed the recommendations of the 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 scientific the global panel of scientists the the ipcc and said okay by about mid century we need to get to net zero uh how are we going to do it and how do we make sure that we've got uh we we bring our emissions down steadily um so that we're able to achieve that target and this is a sequence of things and i would argue against being too precipitous and saying i mean i i know that their voices are out there that say transition immediately fossil fuels are a crime uh they have massive environmental and health consequences which i agree with um i just think you've got to plan this in a way that uh you know if you, if you follow what the chinese are doing for instance you know they've they've come up with the net zero target of 2060 i mean i i know you're going to tell me we're not china but what uh, and they've been a little bit you know they've been pushing back against this pressure for change to decarbonize but while they're pushing back they've been methodically building their technology and industrial capacity around renewables and they've mastered solar and wind uh, around nuclear and they've uh, you know mastered nuclear technology in their country and battery technology and you know they're one of the world's biggest producers of battery technology um at the same time as lining up all of the mineral resources that are required to feed those supply chains so the the nickel and the cobalt and the iron and the steel and copper um and i would argue you know you you've got to you've got to approach this thing method uh, methodically uh we've got to build an in uh, an industrial manufacturing capacity in those technologies if we do this roll out tomorrow simply based on importing everything from overseas it's going to have macroeconomic effects that we cannot 
manage. Uh, uh, the, uh, you know, our calculation is that you need about three to four gigawatts of renewable power per annum being, being fed onto the grid. Um, to do that, we've got to do two very important things. The one is that we need to reconfigure our grid because we've got a grid that's configured for the coal resource and we've got to reconfigure it for the renewable resource. And that's quite an undertaking. I mean, there's this plan now for the eight and a half billion part of it is to spend on, on 12,000 kilometers of transmission. Well, that would be a good way to spend it, wouldn't it? Because it would enable precisely what that money is there for. It would be, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, it would be a real enabling technology. The other thing you've got to do is balance the grid. So you can't have a renewables dominant grid without balance. But all of those things surely are, are perfectly technically possible. Absolutely. What's slow here is policy, is, is, the, is decision making in the sense that, um, um, you know, that the, the, for instance, to say that, you know, you need to be able to, man this is a good example, especially for me, that you need to be able to make the, the renewable um, capital equipment that you're going to be using, solar panels or propellers and all that kind of stuff. We did that and they all shut down, as you remember, um, uh, because there was a sort of lull in, in, in bid windows and this kind of thing. Bid right? window so that, five that, was delayed and that was unconscionable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that caused untold yeah, damage. I understand. But, but the other problem is, if you're going to wait until we have the capacity to manufacture stuff, you'll be waiting forever because we won't have the capacity to manufacture until, until there is a demand. And there's no demand without the electricity. And surely the thing to do now is to trust in the future and say, whatever we do, let's just get it done quickly, get the stuff imported. What, what, you know, get, we can say to people, listen, we want two or three manufacturers of, of, of panels, come and set up uh, uh, plants in, in, in at Kucha. Um, you, you will give you all sorts of tax breaks and God knows what, and just churn out these things so that we can put them up and start capturing energy. We don't have to make them ourselves. That's Abraham Patel's dream. But it's, too, it's, it's the wrong way around. You've got to have the electricity to have the manufacturing capacity. And we don't, and yeah. nobody's going to invest in manufacturing capacity that don't have reliable electricity. Yeah, you need, you need the demand in the system. And we argue that government needs to signal that demand. I mean, one of the things we're, gonna, we're gearing up to make recommendations on is our energy planning system, which is really outdated and antiquated and is stuck in a sort of master planning mindset. We're, we're, we're heading in a different direction. We've got a far more decentralized, open and competitive grid coming. Um, and eventually, you know, the, the ideal is to reach a point where the market is uh, assessing the long-term demand and risk and is responding accordingly. But in the interim, government will be procuring this power. And Mantash has, you know, uh, bid window six is now in the mail. Um, uh, he has indicated very clearly that there is going to be a regular and systematic round uh, of, of, of bid windows. Uh, we're pushing government to actually put numbers to that and to map it out 
over the period of the transition so that you know investors can have certainty about the level of demand that's going to be injected into the system isn't there a problem though that i was reading stuart theobald uh, in business day today I'm, i'm not sure if you saw his article i do recommend it though because he's what he's what he's reporting is that none of the projects in bid windows 4 or 5 have reached financial closure yet in other words they can't start work because uh, precisely because of what you were mentioning the localization of manufacture you can't get the stuff made here you can't do the deal until you've got the 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 kit to put in place something is going badly wrong crispin surely in 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 the way we are going about it there is ideology is getting in the way here of not of of common sense surely what we need is just what we've decided to build can we at least just build that you, you say 4 gigawatts 4 gigawatts a year well i've heard arguments going either way peter i mean you know i've spoken to a number of the renewable energy companies that shut down uh when but when the fire was delayed they were saying uh what they they what ruined them was flip flopping from government on the on the local procurement requirement so there are a whole lot of local manufacturers that are saying government's not being strict enough on 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 local content um and I, you know I, i'm aware there's a very active debate out there in the media uh, i mean you know there a whole lot of opinions well, and bernstein's yeah. weighed in on this they think ibrahim's policies up to rubbish um you know i i, I don't think we should uh, get stuck on that issue i mean i i, I support local content i i think it's the way to go long term i think there's a strategic question about how we get there and what the pace is at which you inject local content surely, surely you simply say to people come and make it here that's what thailand did and it it's a you know it used to be basically a giant rice paddy 50 years ago and now it's a you know it's a huge industrial economy because they got people to come and do things there the tires didn't invent the motor car or microchips they just got people to come and make their my cars and microchips and car canopies there half the car canopies in south africa are made of bucky canopies are made in thailand anyway the 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 um um the other part of this debate um is it about the actual technologies to be used nuclear gas or whatever um can you just talk a little bit about gas because i'm confused there is as you say a discussion going on about gas and your and and your commission is not doesn't have yet have a position the national business initiative came out with a huge and very very thoughtful uh report recently in which it recommended that gas be used i think they're talking about liquid natural gas gas be used as a transitionary fuel between now and whenever we get to renewables um this is a position i think that the department of minerals and energy also supports i'm not sure uh, because it's confusing um but um there is certainly gas exploration uh, being sought uh, of south africa total is I think looking for for um for oil off the west coast maybe gas as well there are gas fields finds 100 kilometers offshore which might make it very difficult to extract and very expensive um 
uh, and the the you know what it's so what is interesting is that one doesn't know where the gas story begins and ends. The NBI obviously heavily influenced by Sassol, um, it which has an interest in gas and converting it into uh, converting it into energy. You know, to what extent does the just transition or the transition become? And I, you know, I don't. Yeah, well, maybe let me let me be rude for a moment. To what extent does it become the next arms deal? You know, we spend a hundred billion. We spend a hundred billion rand on on transitory gas technology so that we can burn a bit of it and give ourselves some. And by the time it's all set up and installed, it's basically obsolete. And we've got five years to go to 2050 when we're supposed to be, you know, carbon zero. You're getting zero. me onto my hobby horse now, Peter. So, I mean, yeah. let me say first and foremost, I mean, corruption and rent-seeking need, need to be uh, front of mind as we approach these big energy projects because they're, you know, they're like dripping roasts for those that want to get their hands into the system and, and, and create backhanders. So whatever we do in, in energy has to be done with, first of all, proper attention to governance and oversight. And secondly, uh, uh, some solution on the implementation side, because the other big problem, particularly in ESCOM, um, but you know, the, the implementation issues across the state and even in the private sector, we, you know, we, we, we have to seriously jack up our ability to get projects to market and, and, and running effectively. Uh, we, can't, we can't approach things where, you know, something that you plan today only gets realized in 15 years' time. Um, on the question, that would apply to bid windows four and five, I presume. Yeah, I mean, look, let me say I, the, the REI4P process is one of the, and it's worldwide acknowledged as one of the best run uh, processes with a very high degree of uh, integrity. And the rent seekers have not been able to break their way into that system. Um, and I think that's a real asset as we move forward and we should continue to protect and preserve that capacity um, I was simply and, mentioning in the mentioning yeah. trying to raise the fact that 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 while they are here and now projects and they've been signed off, they're not. There's no movement. They're not being done. The four thousand megawatts well, we need every year isn't being done. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's a longer and separate conversation happened. about where the 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 gaps lie. I mean, some of it is delays in ESCOM coming up with the wheeling agreements and. You know, you do need to be mindful of the fact that ESCOM's already maxed their grid capacity on, on, on the western side of the country. They, they cannot add more renewable projects. Even if they're awarded and you get the awarded contract, they, they cannot absorb that onto the grid with the current grid. Um, so they do have very serious grid planning issues, which I agree, you know, government needs to fix. Um, uh, it's obviously, but lots of opportunity to use the, the, the sort of properties and the mines and the power stations. They already happen in yeah. Pumalanga to do exactly the same. 
I, I would agree strongly with you. I mean, the thing that we've gotten in Pumalanga is a well-established grid, a declining coal-fired uh, uh, power resource, and fairly good. I mean, on the edge of the escarpment, you've got a very good wind resource. The solar is better than you know, pretty much anywhere in Europe. Um, so you can already do renewables. It's not as uh, commercially attractive as other parts of the country, but when you factor in the existing grid capacity and the lower connection fees, it makes commercial sense to do renewables in Mpumalanga. And we're pushing that very strongly. Um, but on the issue of gas, um, you know, uh, the, the, the anti-fossil fuel lobby is painting this as a question of, do you do gas or not? Um, I, I don't think that's the right question. Uh, I, I, I think it's, I mean, we're already doing gas and we are going to need gas until we get battery technology and hydrogen at a level that can balance the grid. So to me, the question is, how much and for how long? And the real danger, I mean, yeah, I know the, the environmentalists are up in arms about any kind of prospecting anyway. If you're going to you know, drive a car or you know, uh, cook food on your gas stove, you've got to accept that this resource comes from somewhere. So, you know, um, you can say, I'm not prepared to do contemplate drilling anywhere in South Africa, uh, but then you go and drive your car tomorrow. So, you know, I, I, I think people are, are not being fully honest with themselves. The real danger with gas is, is one of stranded assets. So we're going to need gas until about 2030, late 2030s, mid 2040s. If you're prospecting now for gas, it's going to take you 10 years to get that gas to market. And then you've got to finance the infrastructure over a 20 year period. That takes you into the 2050s. So I would argue that you're unable to finance those projects. And uh, the only reason some people are being able to raise finance is that they haven't fully priced in the climate risk. So yeah, the, the whole country seems up in arms about the car power shift deal. And I, I can't talk about the integrity uh, from, uh, you know, procurement side of that deal. Um, but the idea of floating in gas-fired power stations, plugging LNG into them, and then after 20 years getting rid of them is actually not a bad solution. Um, you know, it, it avoids the stranded yeah. asset problem. But what... What it doesn't avoid, obviously, is, and you would have to be, you'd be at the centre of that. Is 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 the potential um, uh, for corruption in in the in the infrastructure that laid out? But you talk about, you know, no decisions ever being made about gas. I keep reading that Transnet is already, um, I think, has put out requests for proposals or or has plans or has announced an inv an investment in. In, in a new gas terminal at Richards Bay, what, what gas would that be? What's it for? Who's the client? Who's, who's the market? How can Transnet have already been making that decision? And it's not even a Department of Minerals and Energy call. 
It's a transport department. Uh, no, sorry, it's a it's a it's, it's a, a it's a private it's a public enterprises. Yeah, I mean Transnet is doing uh, an LNG terminal at Richards Bay, and as, and wow. I understand the offtaker is Sassel, and Sassel needs a big slug of gas because their their pathway. I mean, I, I'm sure you would have followed Fleetwood's Fleetwood Robles announcement around Sassel getting to net zero by 2050. Uh, they want well, not with a gas terminal in Richards Bay. Well, at the moment they get their gas uh, via the Mozambique pipeline, and and that gas resource yeah. is running out. Um, uh, and there are, you know, uh, there's some un uncertainty with respect to the security situation. So you've got to diversify your risk, and I think they're getting most of their gas in future through the Richards Bay LNG terminal. I want to I want to just ask one other question and then come to a, a, a closing uh, a closing thought. Um, on batteries, how confident are you that that batteries are going to be okay? You know that we're going to get to the point where if you speak to ESCOM, if you, if you speak to their senior people, what they say to you, can they're very you know comfortable with renewable power as theoretically and all that, but what they need, is dispatchable power whenever they need it, and um, uh, I find it difficult because I'm not a technician in any way. Um, but I presume that batteries are there exactly for that—that that they they store they store electricity until you press the accelerator. And as I've just been in the UK, and this all the taxis in London now are electric. It's fantastic. The acceleration is brilliant. It's dispatchable. It's there when they want it. What is what is it about? So I, I I had an I had a discussion like this with a chap called Clive Mallinson a couple of uh, months ago who about batteries and somebody wrote to me saying that um, that uh, he'd done his own calculations and done his own models and that the models that he had heard on the podcast couldn't possibly be true and I was just wondering about people and modelling. I'm sure you must get this all the time. Um, uh, Surely the models already exist. That why would one need to model what a battery can do? There are batteries in place all over the world. Um, one hopes they improve. Perhaps we'll get one day to solid-state batteries, which might be even better and certainly safer. Um, how much more debate do we need about all this stuff? So about whether it works or not. So the the the, the issue with grid balancing is that you're, so there's your diurnal rhythm and demand. So, you know, we've got these morning and evening peaks and then demand sort of drops in the middle of the day and it falls off completely during the night. So the, the, the first job in balancing the grid is to balance the diurnal rhythm. But then you've also got um, the weekly and the seasonal rhythms. And it's the seasonal rhythms that are the most difficult to balance. Uh, and for that, you need energy carriers that can store the energy, uh, you know, almost indefinitely. And batteries are not at that level. I mean, they, their charge slowly dissipates over the course of weeks. Um, and you have to keep recharging them. Um, also running, you know, the, the kinds of batteries that you need for balancing a grid are very different in, in size and scale to the 
batteries that you use running your car or your house um, and have very serious you know cooling uh, cooling issues uh, I mean they can overheat and explode um, and I don't yet know I mean I don't yet know of a battery that's at a hundred megawatts um, and you know we need we need bat we need batteries that are at the level of gigawatts of power. Sure, sure. Um, no, no, I, I I understand that. But batteries obviously will be charged in a solar or in a renewables environment during the day mainly, uh, whereas correct. now they are charged at night by ESCOM when there's no industrial use, uh, and that that is a real big change I presume in the way we think about um, about electricity. Crispin, just, I mean, so what happens now? Just in the, what's the next few months in this debate? Where do we go? What, what are the big decisions you've got to, what are the big calls you have to make in the next six months? So we're, as you know, we've been drafting this framework for a just transition, which, which spells out all of the different levers that we need to pull in order to do proper economic diversification yeah, uh, intervene in the labor market, build skills for the future, cushion workers that, you know, lose jobs. Um, our next big focus area is going to be on the energy transition. And over the next six months, we're having a series of debates around some of the key questions, such as, you know, how do you balance a modern grid? Um, what's the role of gas in in balancing the grid and can you do without gas at all as as some people are arguing uh, if you have to have gas how much gas also what are the governance issues that we've got to address going forward so you know how do we continue this move towards a more open and decentralized grid um, uh, what are the grid uh, capacity issues that have to be addressed um, and is ESCOM able to address them and is there a way of getting other parties into fixing some of those problems and then lastly what's the energy planning tools that we need into the future um, so you know is the IRP still a relevant instrument are there more flexible and dynamic tools that, that, that we can rely on. The $8.5 billion promised at uh, COP26 in Glasgow last year by the Americans and the Europeans, to what extent has that been threatened by our approach to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I keep being told that it's under threat. Uh, not that I've heard. I mean, look, there has been a bit of diplomatic pushback. Uh, uh, countries are clearly not happy with uh, the stance that South Africa has taken. But if this deal is hostage to political issues like that, it's, it's going to undermine uh, the G7's ability to intervene in any developing country. Because, you know, our, you know, our other BRICS countries, uh, India, Brazil, uh, Thailand, Rwanda. I mean, there's there's a whole group of countries that are being lined up for similar kinds of of just transition deals. Um, uh, I think the deal will go ahead. Um, I think the real question is whether uh, how real the money is, and you know, our climate envoy Daniel Manel is busy grappling with that. Uh, 
and how you heard all these different donor agendas and South African government agendas together yeah. onto the Difficult. same page. It's a complex deal, but I, yeah. I think we need it. It's going to help accelerate the transition. It's going to upgrade the grid. It's going to invest in, in a whole chunk of renewables to take us forward. And it's going to start building the infrastructure for EVs and hybrids. So, and we'll have to end it there. It is a pleasure and an education, uh, Crispin, talking to you. And thank you very much for your valuable time. Thank, oh, you. thank you. And thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another interesting guest. In the meantime, be safe. Thank you.